We gather again today as broken people in a broken world. Welcome. Some people may be more broken than others. It is certainly the case. There are nations that are more dysfunctional than the next. But we are all broken. And we live on the stage of a dying planet. Nature creaks and it groans, yearning for the pristine condition it enjoyed prior to being cursed in consequence of Adam's sin against the Creator. It's all broken. Our existence is plagued by war, by disease, natural disasters, pain, social and relational meltdown. It is marred by famine and plague and starvation and political tyranny and sexual abuse and racism and murder and theft and innumerable forms of rebel self-interest and sinful pleasure-seeking. That's the world in which we live. Even the simple things that we own age. They decay, they fall into disrepair, and they die. And all this brokenness translates into frustration for us. It translates, indeed, into suffering for us. You have suffered. You are suffering, and you will face more suffering in the future. Bible-believing Christians face these realities squarely. We know we are sinful people. We know that we're living among sinful people in a cursed and broken world. We face that straight up. But we gather this Lord's Day to proclaim and to sing in a broken world that this is not the end for us. This is not the final chapter. Indeed, it is on this very front against this dark backdrop of human suffering that the history-altering, death-conquering, salvation-securing mission of Jesus Christ shines so brightly. Because of what the incarnate Son of God, our risen, reigning Lord and Savior, has accomplished in His work of redemption, we walk into this waking world with hope. We have the audacity to hope, to know that there is confidence that we can have in the promises of God for the future. This is not where it ends. Returning to Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, we see this Spirit coming out as Paul writes, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or that is, if we would understand it rightly, I think it's just to suck us into that glory. It will envelop us as we come into that glory. Not simply a picture we're going to look at, but a world we're going to walk into. And the suffering of this life does not compare with the glory that will be there in the presence of the Lord. We have this assurance that continues from verse 18. As we noted it last week, the assurance that creation will be redeemed. There will be a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will reign through everything. There is the assurance, secondly, that our bodies will be redeemed, transformed, again, sucked into the glorious realm of Christ's conquest over sin and death. This is the assurance that we have. This is the hope with which we live life. All will be brought back to the way that God originally created it. And we stake our hope there, and it affects how we suffer and how we look at a broken world. This confident expectation that the redemption Redemptive conquest of Christ will restore the sinless, painless, deathless, original creation. This hope holds us up. 
It keeps our eyes fixed on that final destination that Christ's resurrection guarantees. We eat and we drink knowing, waiting until He comes. That is our hope in this broken world. And in Romans chapter 8, coming to verses 26 and following, Paul drills down on this hope by revealing two further promises that sustain the believer in this broken world. Somebody brought you an insurance policy you didn't know you had. And somehow through various means, it came out that you have millions of dollars in these two policies, you would study them with some detail and some pleasure, wouldn't you? There are two promises that are here that are way more valuable than any such policy. Let's study them. Let's know them. Let's realize these are promises of God concerning our future. These are stabilizing promises that His Word has revealed that are of infinite value to us. We come to the verse, the first in verse 26, where we read, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We have here the promise of the aid of the Spirit, and noting, first of all, the help that we need. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That is, likewise, as the hope of our future redemption sustains us in suffering, in like manner, the Holy Spirit also sustains us as we live in this broken world. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. There is our need, first of all, our weakness. I think it draws us back to verse 18. In our suffering. It draws us to verse 20. This cursed world. This world that is in bondage to corruption. It draws us back to verse 23, the groan in our spirit that bears witness to our physical corruption due to sin's curse. In that weakness, in that broken world, you as that broken person, in that weakness, the Spirit helps us. In this position of weakness, we also need help due to our ignorance. We see verse 26, not only in our weakness, but we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We need God's aid to live in this dangerous and painful world while continuing to persevere in the faith. But we lack knowledge of how to secure God's aid in prayer, particularly as we suffer. The context here. You know this, don't you? I know this. As we pray, there are times we feel so inept I don't know what to pray. I don't know what God wants. I don't know what's going on. I don't know where I'm going to head head here. I need His help. In our weakness, in our ignorance, the middle of verse 26, we we see the help that He supplies. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So in our weakness, in our ignorance, what does the Spirit do? Middle of verse 26, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. Oh, that God would help us feel the wonder of this assurance policy. That He would help us to sense the significance of this. 
We cannot hear this ministry, of course, but by faith we can know this, that the Holy Spirit is constantly praying to the Father in our behalf. Imagine that. This is very, very good news. I see no reason to doubt that the Spirit is doing this all the time. But within this context, it seems that He particularly helps us at times of suffering. The Spirit helps us. That is, He supplies our ignorance. The emphasis falls on the Spirit's aid, indeed, as we pray. So I think He's praying when we're not praying, but certainly more pointedly, when we are praying, the Spirit of God is supplying and sustaining that prayer. The more violently that death and despair blow bitter wind at us, the more effectually the Holy Spirit stokes the fires of prayer and warms the presence of the Lord in our soul. Trusting this truth in faith has a way of turning whining into wonder and converting despair into trust. Hold this, Christian. As I'm praying in my trial, when I don't know what to do, when life is coming down and besetting me, I can know that the Spirit of God is praying for me, within me, praying for me. We see the method of the Spirit's prayers here in verse 26 as well. It is with groanings too deep for words. This is how that works itself out, and it leaves us virtually as confused if it, as if it wasn't stated. But there's some wonder and mystery here we can grab onto. The Holy Spirit groans with inaudible, earnest prayers that remain unspoken, but are perfectly communicated. We pray in our suffering, but we do not fully know what to pray. We may even pray foolishly at times, but we have this confident assurance the Holy Spirit is always praying for us with flawless precision and with absolute perfection. There's such comfort and assurance in that, isn't there? To know that this work is going on as assuredly as Christ is reigning in heaven, just as assuredly the Holy Spirit is praying within the believer. Does this mean we don't need to pray? I assume from this text that the Spirit will pray for us if we fail to pray. I think that would be a fair assumption. But let's remember that we are also commanded to pray, and even more significantly, we are privileged to pray. Indeed, the text emphasizes what? That He will help us. He will come to assist us. And so the idea here is that the, the conclusion, does that mean I don't need to pray, is really asking the wrong question. Because everything is calibrated to our prayers, in our weakness, in our ignorance, the Spirit is there praying with us. Inaudibly, but with figuratively, I think, saying, with groans that the Father can hear and understand. So He helps us this way. He confirms, supports, corrects, encourages our prayers. I don't want to make light of it, but I sometimes wonder if the Spirit doesn't say to the Father, you heard that request, that was ridiculous, but let me bring this to you. He comes to our aid. He fills in our stupidity at times. What mercy is in that? What help? 
the wonder and the effectual nature of the Spirit's prayers is unveiled in verse 27. He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There's a two-way communication going on here, and it's deep mystery. We just feel like we're touching things that are like nuclear. I don't know how I can understand this, but we're led to believe there is one who searches the hearts. Who is that? Verse 27. He who searches the hearts. It's not the Spirit of God, because he who searches the hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit. I think the one who searches the heart is the Father. God the Father. He who searches the hearts knows our pain as we lift our prayers in the anguished moments of life. And the Father also hears every word the Spirit communicates in our behalf. So He searches our hearts, He knows all hearts, and He knows then the mind of the Spirit. Now going at it from the other direction, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So the Father hears every word the Spirit communicates in our behalf, if we even want to use the word words, every idea, every concept, He's catching it, He understands it fully and, in, in, and, and with completion. But from the Spirit's side, He is communicating the will of God. This means two things. It just gets better and better as we think through it. Every prayer the Spirit offers for you is the perfect prayer. It is exactly the prayer that you need. And every such prayer will be answered, secondly. Since it accords with the will of God, it will be answered. You're covered. Again, if that leads you to think, well, then I don't need to pray, you're missing the whole point here. But we are covered. Those who know Christ as Savior through the indwelling Spirit of God, we have one praying with perfection, and every prayer is answered because it accords with the will of God. In those times then, when it seems that God is deaf, you can know that God is actively supplying your every spiritual need in deep, mysterious fellowship within the triune being. God in presence with us. Think of this mystery. Think of this mystery. God in presence with us intercedes with God in watch care above us. I can't explain that, but I trust it by faith. And while we can't understand the depth of this relationship, the depth of this communication, perhaps we can grasp it a bit through simplistic illustration. But imagine a couple of parents. They're school administrators by profession. That's what they do all day long in their work place is they are school administrators they know everything about schools but then in god's mercy they have a daughter and they love this daughter very much and she grows to five years of age and they decide that it would be a good thing to put their daughter in an elite private school imagine what these parents now begin to do this mom and dad as school administrators take on several interviews. 
And then there are negotiations as they represent their daughter. And then they submit paperwork and they meet with teachers and they arrange transportation to the school. Where, how is that going to work out? And their daughter has some kind of sensitive allergies and so they communicate with the school nurse about that and get everything arranged for her. Now this young girl has some responsibilities. She has a test to take. And she takes that test. And there are some simple rules that she needs to learn about classroom behavior. But think of all the things that her parents are doing. She could not even begin to understand, let alone negotiate those things for herself. Right? They come in and they do the talking and they work with these kind of detailed, difficult issues for her in her stead. And they got it all covered. This is kind of hard work. She needs to do her thing. She needs to take her test to get into the school. She needs to learn the rules. But the things that are over her head, mom and dad got that covered. That falls short. But I think it helps us to see just a bit of how the Spirit of God is working in our lives. He's got things covered we could never even begin to understand. He's communicating on our behalf with the Father to accomplish what is good and right for us. At this infinitely higher level, there is operative in our lives one who has the ear of the Father and communicates for us. In this there is great hope and rest. It won't be hard to find. Maybe I even talked to you. I'm not aware of anybody at this point. But there's a lot of Christians that spend a lot of time trying to figure out God's will. And usually that means they're trying to figure out what decision to make in a specific circumstance. And there's all kinds of ways and means that they go through to try to figure out what God wants. And many times it really comes down to reliance on human resources. It comes to reliance upon my own wisdom and my own methods of sort of reading the tea leaves and figuring out what God wants in this situation. I don't mean to dismiss the fact that we do need to seek to discern what God's will is in our lives on some level. But let's think of it in the light of this glorious promise of the aid of the Holy Spirit. I can kind of rest. I don't need to try so hard to figure out exactly what God wants here. Is it A or B and why? I need to reason through it. I need to act as a faithful Christian. I need to rely in prayer upon Him. But would it not be the case that if we really believe this truth about the Spirit of God, that there would be a level of peace in our lives to know that the Spirit is interceding for us? Sometimes I think we look like that little girl if she got all worried about the interviews and the negotiations and the talk with the nurse and all of these things that got all worked up about if it was all taking place the right way. What would her mom and dad say? Let us take care of it. And I think there's a way in which I, I, I realize I can be misunderstood and this can go off in a wrong direction. But I think if rightly understood, there's a certain rest and confidence and peace that we have when we trust in this promise. That the Spirit of God intercedes for us according to the will of God. With perfect intercession. Own it. Hold it. Believe it.
The second promise that fuels our hope in the midst of suffering is this, verse 28 and following. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We see the assertion of this assurance in verse 28. What does this promise mean? That all things work together for good for those who love God or are called according to His purpose. What does it mean? Let me say, first of all, what it does not mean. It does not mean that all suffering is actually good. It's not saying that. Bad is bad and it remains bad forever. This promise is not a, a magic trick in which bad turns into some sort of good illusion, something like that. Secondly, it's not saying that I will be able to see and understand how all things work together for good. We may well gain such knowledge in eternity, but we may not necessarily gain that knowledge here. Again, we can trip here when we say, God's Word promises all things work together for good, and I'm not seeing it, the promise must be faulty. Now we're just reading into the promise what's not there. All things work together for good does not mean that I'm going to always get it and see it. Thirdly, it does not mean that what you believe is good for you is what God thinks is good for you. That what I expect Him to do is what He will do. Kind of a modification of the previous point. Not necessarily. Number four, certainly, just generally, that it's not saying that we should just think happy thoughts and all things are going to work out somehow in the end. He's saying something a lot more significant than that. What does this promise mean? It means that every trial that we suffer is used by God to accomplish and secure a greater standing in glory for us in the end. Every trial that we suffer is used by God to accomplish and secure a greater standing in glory for us in the end. We may not fully see this end until eternity. In fact, I would say we really can't see this end until eternity. But even now, no matter how painful the suffering, God promises that He is weaving everything together for ultimate good. We have this confidence. As we have confidence in the aid of the Spirit, praying in our place, we can have confidence in this promise of God as He works out His sovereign plan. That all things work together for good. To whom does this promise apply? We need to think carefully here. You see it in verse 28. It is to those who love God. Now what does he mean by that? Those who love God. Do not think of this as a subset of Christians who love God sufficiently more than some other Christians that they receive this promise. Those who love God is synonymous with Christians with a true believer. We do not love God as we ought, certainly, but anyone who fails to love God is not a genuine believer. So if you have not been born again, if you have not placed your personal trust in Jesus Christ, crucified in payment for your sins, and risen for your justification, if that's not you, I don't think this promise applies to you. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is, makes that very evident. It is only for those 
who love God, that is, have entered into the capacity to love God because He has given you a new heart. He has taken a cold, stony heart and He has turned it into flesh and He's given you a love for Him that you did not have. So those who love God are genuine believers. And maybe we could stop and say one more thing, that if that love is not there for you, there's a coldness toward God, you've never come to embrace Jesus crucified and risen, this is a place to consider again your need to turn, to repent of your sin and to come to this God who loves you and has given His Son for you. And in this service today, as we've gathered around this table and considered the death and the resurrection of Christ, this is the message that you must embrace. Not so that you can get this promise working in your life, like you want to steal an insurance policy, but because you know, deep down inside, I am alienated from God. I go to church, I might do some good things, I know some things about the Bible, but you know down deep there's not a warm relationship with Jesus Christ. If that's where you are today, don't worry about this here. Worry about Christ. Come to Him. For those who do, there is a love in our heart for the Lord, and for those who love Him, all things work together for good. Secondly, it applies at the end of verse 28, that is, to those who are called according to His purpose. Same people as those who love the Lord. But what does it mean, called according to His purpose? This is not a reference to God's general call of all people unto salvation. This is the kind of call that effects what it offers. Perfect picture, virtually, in Jesus calling Lazarus from the tomb. It affects, the call effects what it promises. Come out. The man's dead. But he hears the call of God. And he comes out of the tomb. So those who are called according to His purpose are true believers. They are those who have responded to the voice of God calling the dead to life according to His sovereign will. Now some would argue that God's call here is that general call to all people. That's what it, He's talking about but that leads to a, a big problem. And that leads to the problem that those who are called, if everything is working together for good, it's working together for good, ending up in hell and separation from God. That's a, that's a major problem with that view. But beyond that obvious inconsistency is the fact that the calling here does not hinge on people's response. It does not hinge on God's foreknowledge of their response. This calling is rooted in God's purpose. Those who are called according to the will of God. According to His purpose. So God determines who He will call and all whom He calls respond in saving faith. I would say to be consistent with the flow of thought and the truth of this idea that the one who is called is the one who loves the Lord. The one who loves the Lord and is called is the one that God has saved. For those that He has saved, we have this promise. And we could not want anything else. All things work together for good. 
God in His sovereign plan, as He has brought us to salvation, is working out all the details of your life, believer, for good. That helps me stand on my feet in this troubled and broken world. That is a promise that I can take with me into eternity. I'm going to do everything I can to stay on my feet here before you. I, I'll say that it, it frustrates me. It angers me. I hope righteously. But it angers me when I hear people so often speak of this verse and call it cheesy. I heard that just this week. Someone saying that about this word. I don't believe that cheesy verse. I'm not talking about anybody in this church, okay? <laughs> it's not, not anything like that and not somebody I know, but I, but I saw it recorded. Just cheesy. And then it's not uncommon, and I've run across this sometimes as well, where people respond in anger that someone would quote this verse to them in their sorrow. I don't get that. I just don't understand this. Now, let's step back and say it's very true. We can use a verse like this in a condescending way. We can quote this verse with a scolding tone or callous to people's suffering and trial. We don't have tender compassion when we take a verse like this and bang someone over the head that is facing great trial and difficulty. But may we never dismiss this promise as off-limits in the trenches of suffering. That, I think, is great folly. This is a gift of God to us, this promise. And it's a gift to us in the midst, in the trenches of suffering. This promise is balm to the wounded soul. It is light to those who are in the darkness of despair. It is hope to those who see no way forward in their suffering. For God's suffering people, this promise is life-giving truth from the mouth of God. I will work all things together for your good, child. All things. Trust me. Don't despair. I reign from heaven's throne and I will never, ever leave you or forsake you. That's not cheesy. That's not beating someone over the head with something. That is pure grace from God's throne. Don't throw it away. Brothers and sisters, when I suffer, speak to me early and often of God's sovereign purposes in all that I suffer. Quote this verse to me. Do so graciously. But as you do so graciously and lovingly, reminding me what God has said to us in our trials... I won't trash you on social media that you have dared to speak God's truth to me before I was ready for it. When in this waking world is God's word delivered too soon? As if I've got things I've got to say first that are more important. Again, all has to be qualified. But this thinking just continues to go on in the life of the Bible-believing church, and I think it needs to be addressed and arrested. I don't ultimately need to know how badly you feel for me. That might be nice. But what I need is God. I need friends who speak His truth to my soul. 
His sovereign love is my fortress and defense against the enemy of my soul. And His Word is the defense against all those echoes from the pit that assure me God does not care and my world is falling apart. And if I get so beclouded by my sin, so hard-hearted in my suffering, that I don't want to hear God's Word, I don't want to hear that He sovereignly works all things together for good, announce His Word to me anyway. Because that's all that's going to break through my hard heart. Pray it over me. Because only this Word will soften my heart in that dark hour. Defining need in a crisis is not a function of my sovereign passions. The righteous live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So my friends who have tasted of God's grace, kindly, gently, mercifully speak to me God's word. I have no other hope. I have no other promise that matters. I need God. And by the way, it strikes me, I'm not aiming at anybody here, okay? I just see this over and over again in writings. And I think we've got to address it. So please be at peace. That wasn't a shot at anybody here. This assurance is grounded in verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you think he's going to follow through? He's got this all there. This plan of salvation. This sovereign God who is working all things together for good. It's all grounded here in His salvation purposes. We have four pillars in a sense arranged like a bridge. Linking together and conveying us from the start of redemption history to the final day. Verse 29, the word for. For those. That is, that there's the ground or the explanation of how it is possible to assert that all things work together for good. What's the confidence I have with that? If it's not just pie in the sky, then what is it? It's a sovereign plan in the sky. It's the King of kings and Lord of lords saying, here it is, those whom God foreknew, He also predestined. There's some big words here. Maybe you're just coming to understand these words. For those of you that are younger among us, I would say they're hard because nobody talks about them in the neighborhood or at school. They're not words that are everyday life, but come to hear them. Come to understand them. For those of us who are developing theological roots, we've got to have a place for these words. You may not get everything today. I don't think any one of us will get everything in this life. But God foreknew us as His people. The foreknowledge of God is not merely His advanced knowledge of what He knows a person yet to be born will do in the future. I don't think that's the idea of it. God clearly has such knowledge. No Bible believer would deny that. There are people that push the edges of it, I'll admit, but... I think anyone really committed to biblical exposition, they would all understand that God knows beforehand what we will choose. But God's foreknowledge is not merely a capacity to see what we would eventually decide in the future. His foreknowledge 
is determinative. That is, when we limit the definition to seeing ahead of time, we fail to grasp the biblical roots of the word, that there's something much deeper than just knowing something that's to come. And I think we would tie it really with the Hebrew concept of the word yada in the Hebrew, which is the word to know. And you probably have picked that up if you've read the Old Testament at all. You realize that the word to know is used in some kind of strange ways in the Hebrew text. Like, for instance, about a husband's and wife's relationship physically. A husband knows his wife. That means sexual knowledge. God is said to know Israel. There is a, a sense of intimacy there along Similar lines, not the same lines, it's not a sexual reference, but about very close, intimate idea. That, I think, is what is behind foreknowledge. Not just a knowledge of facts to come, but a knowledge of intimacy. God knows you, Christian. He's come to know you. Now, notice also that Paul does not say God foreknew something about us. It says that He foreknew us for those, the people that God foreknew. Those that He chose to love in this special way from eternity past, He predestined. That is, He determined something about those He he elected to salvation from eternity past. He made a decision about them, those that He knew intimately before they existed, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. We need to get this. We really need to get this. Or assurance promise number two really doesn't make a lot of sense. All things work together for good, and the ultimate good, if we'll put a face on it, is to transform us into the likeness of Jesus. This is where we get into trouble when we think that all things work together for good to clear my plate of problems to make everything make sense, to work everything out nicely so that I feel good about my life. None of that. He works all things together for our good in order to conform us into the likeness of Jesus. And I don't need to remind you, particularly this morning, that He suffered. We gather around this table to remember His suffering. I will, says the Father, conform you into the image of my dear son. Little by little, pain by pain, blessing by blessing, ultimately in eternity, he will conform us to the likeness of Christ. Ultimately there, free from sin and in a redeemed body. But if we're seeking the wrong thing from God, we're not going to rejoice in the fact that he works all things together for good. We're going to spend most of our life confused. But if I remember this, that He's conforming me into the likeness of Christ, then I know that He has predetermined this plan. That He might be, verse 29, the firstborn among many brothers. The idea there is taking on flesh, Jesus defeated death by rising from the grave. This crowned Him as the firstborn. Not firstborn in that He came to life, at a certain place, but firstborn in the sense of preeminence and supremacy. The most important one is the idea. He holds supremacy then over the new humanity that will one day be like Him glorified and exalted. 
God's plan continues then in verse 30 where we read then that those predestined to be with the firstborn one conformed to His image. Verse 30, those whom He predestined, He also called. Coming back to that idea of calling, that it affects what it offers. And those whom He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. He justified. There are some Christians that believe there will be people in hell who were foreknown, predestined, called, and justified. That's the case because they lose their justification through sin. I would wholeheartedly reject that idea while I respect those who hold it, but I don't think that's at all the idea. It is more consistent biblically to see this as an unbreakable chain of God's design and will. To foreknow is to bring into intimate relationship before the person exists. To predestine is to predetermined, to predetermine that one and the process of that one's life. And to be justified after receiving the call that affects what it offers. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. That is something with which I must cooperate. But it is not something that is in my hands to take or to lose. To be justified is to have a standing of righteousness before the Lord on His terms. Paul does not say that some of those that God called responded or that most of those that he justified, he will glorify. This golden chain holds solid for all people who grasp it by faith. You get the sense here that Paul is in a sense stitching loops together. You can't pull one out. You can't break this chain somewhere. It's God's purpose, it's His plan, and it will be affected. And then we will be glorified. I don't think we should make too much of the past tense here. It's strange because glorification is future, but he speaks of, the, that in a sense, a past tense. Whom he justified, past, he also glorified, past. I don't think we should make too much of that, but I think what it's saying here is that glorification is the end of the equation and that in eternity, when we will be transformed into the likeness of Jesus, this whole plan is settled. It's set. You can even speak of it in the past tense. This is the time when our bodies will be resurrected and we will be freed forever of sin and pain and sorrow and death. For God's people, glorification is future, but it is a settled reality. This plan, how does anything take you out of His hand? How could anything be disaster? For us, the Spirit of God is praying, actively interceding for us. And God's sovereign plan has seen us from eternity past and said, That one is mine. How could anything break into that and turn us away? I don't act like it. Do you? As I deal with the trials and the problems of life, I don't live as if these promises are true always. But may we set our feet in them and stand upon them 
and know that what God has revealed is as true here as it is when he says that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of our sins. Just as assuredly the Spirit of God, Christian, is praying in your behalf. Just as assuredly, God's sovereign plan has you covered from beginning to end. He's had a purpose for you since before time. And your glorification is as sure in Christ as God's very nature is sure forever. So we need to know that God's purpose for us ends in glorification and keep our eyes set there. We're no afterthought. We are rather in the crosshairs of God's saving purposes. So don't curse the darkness. Don't even despise suffering. Know that suffering is part of the tapestry that God is weaving to prepare us for glory. We can despise suffering in the sense that it will not overwhelm us. It is not bigger than God. But we don't need to rage against it. God has our back from beginning to end. Never forget that as objects of His sovereign purposes then, He works all things together for our ultimate good. And how this should change suffering for us. How can this not radiate from us to a lost world that has no such categories, no such promises? When we stand on our feet in solid faith with an eye fixed on the glory that is to come, resonating in prayer with the Spirit's presence in us. That's a different face. That's a different way of dealing with this world. It's based on the promise of God. And as we suffer then, we need to calibrate our prayers to this salvation history, trusting that the Spirit is interceding with us, knowing what God has done, what He will done, what He will do, and placing our hope and confidence in that wholeheartedly by His grace. If you're running away from God today, we call you to repentance, to turn from your sin and your self-centeredness. And if there's a sense that I am very, very small, that's a good sense. You can't stand in your own strength, but you can stand in Christ's strength. And we would call you to that. For those of us who know Him, may our faith be deepened through this time in His Word. May God use this. May the Spirit use this in us to deepen us in our faith for His glory and for our joy. Father, we pray, help us in our prayers. Spirit of God, change us, work in us, root out sin. Help us to see ourselves in our weakness and ignorance but to rejoice in your glories, in your purposes for us in Christ. Father, bring about good through this time in your word. Bring to Christ those who do not know him. In his name we pray. Amen.